we will finish the Sermon on the Mount today, and then we will jump into um, the Psalms next week. We're not going to go in order in the Psalms. We're going to be jumping around in them, but we'll, we'll, we'll stay in the Psalms uh, through the end of the summer, through August, and then, Lord willing, my wife will have a baby, and then I think we'll have a guest preacher during then. I think she's the next up to the plate, so the women who are pregnant here, so <coughs> we're excited about that. So, Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at uh, the rest of the chapter there from ver- starting in verse 13. So I'll read for us. <clears throat> this is God's word. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruits. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's, let's pray together. Father, uh, thank you for these, these words. They are, they are sobering. And so I pray as we listen to these words uh, that we would have ears to hear that we would have minds to understand, that our hearts would be ready to receive what it is that you have to show us from your holy word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Is there a right way to live? I think if you took took a survey of the world's population, the the entire world, if you were to take a, a survey you would find out that most people would answer that question with a resounding yes, of course. But at the same time, to say there's a right way to live sounds presumptuous. To say there's a right way to live is to also say at the exact same time that there is a wrong way to live. 
And to say that there is a, a right way and a wrong way to live is also to say that there are certain people living the right way and certain people who are living the wrong way. And that's where it gets a little tricky. Because how do I know that I'm right? And if I think I'm right, how can I say that you're wrong? Well, the answer is found in the text. Because this is what Jesus has been getting at throughout the entirety of his sermon. Now, I know some think that Jesus' main interactions, and you, you might be one of these people, that his main interactions are between uh, bad people and good people. And so you have all these bad people over here who are doing all these, these heinous crimes and they're sinning in ways that you would never sin because you consider yourself a good person. And so you're in the good category. And so Jesus is on your team and Jesus is fighting for you. And some would even go so far as to construct this model in which a, good, uh, a person's good points are tallied up and weighed against their bad points. And then that's how, you're, that's how uh, the end of... Uh, the end of your life is determined, whether or not you will go to heaven or hell if your bad uh, out, uh, doesn't outweigh your good. Which is ridiculous if you just read the Bible. Paul says to the Ephesian church, he says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. So actually, if you're paying attention to Jesus' words and Jesus' interactions, uh, most of Jesus' interactions and his language is directed toward a specific group of people during his day who were known as these religious elites, these Pharisees and these scribes and these Sadducees. And this is who Jesus was uh, directing his words towards typically. And so this is the distinction that Jesus is making here in our text this morning, but also throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and then I would say even broader throughout his entire ministry, is those who find the right way to live in themselves versus those who find the right way in Christ alone. Those who find the right way in themselves versus those who find the right way in Christ alone. And this idea of two ways is one that is found throughout the Bible. Jonah read it for us from Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's very clear. One will have life and the other will bring death. And then you see it in a place like Joshua chapter 24 when Joshua challenges God's people because he's seen them run through the cycle of, of, of sin and leaving God and then crying back out to God. And so Joshua finally says to them, Choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So in the concluding words of Jesus' sermon, he's doing this exact same thing. He's saying to you, choose this day whom you will serve. Will you go on trying to save yourselves like the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes? 
Or will you put your hope and trust in Christ? And in these final words of the sermon, Jesus uses three metaphors to make this very, very clear. With paired alternatives to insist that there are two ways and only two ways to live. There is no middle road. There's no third option off to the side over here. There are two ways in which everyone in this room and everyone in the world is honored. So he spells it out for us in in three ways. One is uh, by showing us two paths, and then two trees, and then finally two outcomes. Two paths, two trees, and two outcomes. And as you'll see, uh, see, as we work our way through each one of these metaphors, what you're going to see is that One way is the right way, and the other way is the wrong way. One ends in life, good fruits, entrance into the kingdom of heaven, and stability. The other ends in destruction, bad fruits, fire, exclusion from the kingdom of heaven, and total collapse. So the sobering reality in all three of these metaphors is that you either enter the kingdom of God or you don't. You either walk the road that leads to life or you walk the road that leads to destruction. So first, two paths. The interesting aspect of of this first metaphor is the way that Jesus begins it in verse 13 with enter by the narrow gates. So Jesus immediately frames these concluding words with what is right. He wants us to know that this is the right way to live your life, and he is pointing his hearers to this. This verse always reminds me of of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, when the main character, Christian, Uh, is being pointed toward the wicked, with a T, not wicked, wicked gate by the character evangelist. I know that the character names are not very creative, but they help. But after Christian laments to him, laments to evangelist his, his fears of judgment and hell and not knowing where to go, he asks evangelist, where can I fly to escape the wrath to come? And this is their interaction Then said evangelists, why, are you, why not willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? Uh, sorry, let me skip down a little bit. Then said evangelists, if this be thy condition, why do you stand still? He answered, because I know not where to go. When he gave him a par- then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, fly from the wrath to come. The man therefore read it, and looking upon evangelists very carefully said, where must I fly? Then said evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, Do you see yonder wicked gate? The man said, No. Then said the other, Do you see yonder shining light? He said, I think I do. Then said evangelist, Keep that light in your eye and go up directly to it. So shall you see the gate at which you should knock, and it shall be told you what you shall do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. So it's interesting, 
because we have this same interaction happening with us right now in real time as we read these words from Jesus. Because maybe you're asking a similar question, where can I escape the wrath to come? Where can I hide from God's wrath? And Jesus here in the text is pointing you to the narrow gate. He is telling you that is where, the, where you must flee. That is where you must run. Because apart from, from, from his finger, Jesus' finger, pointing you across that open field, you will not find the narrow gate. You will not find the narrow way on your own. And one of the reasons is, is because the narrow way is countercultural. We are a people inclined to look for the path of least resistance. Our motto is work smarter, not harder. We look for wide open spaces. We don't like narrow because we have to get rid of things. We have to give things up. So a move toward the narrow gate will always be met with resistance. This is how, uh, this is how the, back to, to Pilgrim's Progress and our friend Christian here, this is how the world responds to Christians running towards this gate. Now he had not run far from his own door when his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return, but the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but, fl- but fled towards the middle of the plain. The neighbors also came out to see him run, and as he ran, some mocked, others threatened, and some cried after him to return, and some resolved to fetch him back by force. So this narrow way, this move toward the narrow gate is hard because it goes against the majority culture in which you find yourself in most of your days. You're always being met with resistance. You're always being met with those who will mock you and curse you and try to bring you back by force. We all know uh, June is Pride Month, and I don't even have to say what pride means. You already know what the word pride means when I say it. And a lot of the reason we know that it's Pride Month, at least for me, is because the stores that you shop in all of a sudden begin to fly rainbow flags on June 1, when throughout the rest of the year, you don't see it. Because not to celebrate, to not celebrate something that the culture celebrates means a loss of customers, means a loss of money, means a loss of influence. And I use that as an illustration to say to go against the culture will cost you as a Christian. As one commentator put it, he says, the narrow way wins few popularity contests. I would say they win no popularity contests. And it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that to walk the narrow way in our culture is a death sentence which is why Christ says over and over again that he calls you. And when Christ calls you, he calls you to come and die. Because to say something is narrow is to say that something else is being left out or something else is is being excluded. So you hear this when someone calls you narrow-minded. 
You're only thinking one way. You're not opening yourself up or opening your mind up to other ways of thinking and other possibilities. So you're narrow-minded. You're one-directional. And while this is not popular, this is what Jesus is calling you to in the gospel. Because the gate is narrow only because it's limited in its capacity of how you can enter it. Because the only way you enter this gate is through Christ alone. The only way. Jesus explicitly says this in John chapter 10, verse 9. He says, I am the door, or you could also translate that gate. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is saying to his listeners in the Sermon on the Mount that he is the exclusive way to salvation. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says, except by me. John 14, 6. No one. And while this is the way that Jesus calls us to live, uh, Jesus also says this is not the easy way to live either. He says it will be hard. So a narrow gate must be sought out. You have to be looking for it. It's not, it's not as easily recognized as the broad one. Jesus says about the narrow, the narrow way and the narrow gate, he says, few will find it. Few will find it. So Jesus wants you to see that, that the broad way leading to destruction will be one of ease and comfort that also leads you to an impressive gate. This is not, this is not the gates of Mordor in Lord of the Rings that are intimidating and scary and gross. This is an attractive gate. You will be wooed by it. It will be hard to resist. It's the popular way. And because it's popular, Jesus says, that means many will enter through it. Its pool is magnetic and hard to resist. It's attractive. It's the path of least resistance. Whereas the narrow way that brings the traveler to the unpretentious gates is inconspicuous and perceived only by those who look for it carefully. Or one, like our friend Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, who keeps the light in their eyes. So in this next metaphor, Jesus gives his listeners a little bit more of the description of, of what the lives of these two ways look like using two fruit trees in verses 15 through 20. So in the context of the sermon, it's important to understand that the false prophets that Jesus refers to here are defined as those who have this appearance of piety. They have this appearance of holiness. They have this appearance that they are the righteous ones, these Pharisees and these scribes and these Sadducees. But they don't have the greater righteousness, Jesus says. They don't have this greater righteousness that Jesus has been laying out before his listeners uh, here. And unfortunately, I believe the American church 
has fallen prey to this line of thinking. To, to, having this, uh, to ha- only having an appearance of piety or having this appearance of righteousness and not really having the greater righteousness that Jesus gives to us in the Gospels. American Christianity has woven itself together with major political parties, with social structures and, and constructs that hold no biblical value and really are just out Uh, for themselves and to have power and to have a certain amount of influence because they believe that is the way in which the world will be changed. So if we can get so-and-so in office. That's not what Jesus says. That's not what the Bible teaches. Theologian Russell Moore sums it up like this. He says, America isn't a Christian nation. And never was. Stop trying to go back to Mayberry. If you don't know what Mayberry, Andy Griffith, I know, I'm a little older. Stop trying to go back to Mayberry because the road to Mayberry and the road to Gomorrah are the same road. Instead, focus forward to eternity where Christians will be the winners. And we still have churches and whole denominations that are more concerned with numbers and popularity than actually preaching the gospel. So they say enough and do enough to look the part, but really what you have is what Jesus describes uh, later in Matthew chapter 23 when he is pronouncing the woes upon, upon the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious elites, these religious leaders who think they're so pious and so righteous. And then our Lord says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Now this this puts these verses into a cultural context for us. Because one has the appearance of good, one has the appearance of, of Mayberry, while the other is the real thing. And in these verses, Jesus begins in the opposite way than he did in verse 13, beginning with the negative. So in verse 13, or verse 13, he says, uh, in the positive life, enter by the narrow gates. That is the gate that you are to walk towards or run towards. And then here in verse 15, he says, beware. Beware of false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And let me just say, if this warning doesn't strike even just a small amount of fear in your heart, then you're a fool. Because you'll be the one that is deceived by something that appears good, but really isn't. Something that has the appearance of Christianity, the right words spoken, enough to get the point across, the right people that are put in place to give the the right image off to those who are watching, the right programs that are offered to you and your family so it's 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 a fun and safe place for you. The right music being played at the right volume, the right words placed in the right way to make it seem like a church is Christian. 
to make it seem like a political party is Christian or a cultural ideology is Christian or a certain person is a Christian. So how do we know how to tell the difference? Because I can tell you that the way it's typically done by attaching uh, the word Christian to certain things or people or ideologies is not the way you do it. It's not the way you do it. If you, I, I mean, I, w- I would probably say if you have to label something Christian, it probably isn't. You have to put the label there. It probably isn't what you think it is. So, for example, Christian conservatism or Christian nationalism or even just calling someone a Christian. Jesus says this isn't how we know who the wolves are. He says in verse 20, you will recognize the false prophets. You will recognize the wolves. By their fruit. So what does that fruit look like? And this can be tricky when we're dealing, because we're dealing here with two fruit-bearing trees Jesus gives to us. So it's not that Jesus is giving us this this non-producing fruit tree that it's obvious, there's nothing growing on it, so obviously that's not some place that I want to go to to get my fruit from because it's not producing or it's dead. Or you can visibly see that the fruit is, is rotting on the vine and just looks disgusting. Well, Jesus is, there's two trees here, and both, both are attractive. People are attracted to both of these trees. This is why Jesus describes false teachers as wolves. Because wolves are most dangerous because they appear to be sheep. They're, they're, they're appearing to be something that they're not. So it's not always easy to tell a false prophet by their actions because they can say the right words and do the right things and smooth things out. And sometimes it takes a lot of time for a false prophet to be revealed among you. And it's not until later that you say, man, that was, that was not right. That was not good fruit. This is, this, is what Paul t- or this is why Paul warns the Ephesian elders, if you remember this in Acts chapter 20, before Paul is, is about to set sail and he's never going to see the Ephesian church again, he's never going to see these elders who he, he's left to care for the body. This is what Paul says, these are his final words to these men. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he, which he bought with his own blood. Because I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And here's the kicker. These are not people who are going to just going to, uh, you know, bad people that we would be, you know, obvious. We would know when they come in through the door, it would just be obvious. We would know to protect ourselves and to protect our children. This is what Paul says. Even from your own number, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, Paul says. So we need help. We need help from, from both from God's word, 
Because if you're not in God's word, you'll never be able to identify a false prophet. You'll never be able to see a wolf in sheep's clothing. You'll never be able to do that. You will always be deceived. So I'd implore you to be in God's word. So we need help from God's word to know what to look for, but we also need the help of the Holy Spirit to discern what is good and what is bad. The late Bishop J.C. Ryle I wrote, I wrote a little article that I read last night called Four Marks of Fruit-Bearing Christianity. They're a little long, so I'll, I'll post these today, uh, just in case you're a note unless you can take notes really quick. But I'm just going to go through them quickly. But I think they're really helpful, so, so listen. One, he says, fruit-bearing Christianity has always taught the inspiration, sufficiency, and supremacy of Holy Scripture. It's always taught that. So if people are getting away from the inspiration, sufficiency, and supremacy of the Holy Scriptures, wolf, false prophet, bad fruit. Two, fruit-bearing Christianity has always taught fully the sinfulness, guilt, and corruption of human nature. Always taught fully the sinfulness, guilt, and corruption of human nature. So if, if a teacher is, is, is never tells you that you are a sinner, wolf, false prophet, bad fruit. Three, fruit-bearing Christianity has always set before people the Lord Jesus Christ as the chief object of faith and hope in religion, as the divine mediator between God and humanity, the only source of, of, of peace of conscience and the roots of all spiritual life. If, some, if, a, if a teacher tells you that there are other ways to get to God on top of Jesus Christ, wolf, false prophet, bad fruit. Four, fruit-bearing Christianity has always honored, always honored the person of God, the Holy Spirit and magnified his work. So let me just read an extended quote here by J.C. Ryle because I think it helps, helps to really explain what he's getting at here. And it's really helpful. Quote, It has never taught, fruit-bearing Christianity, has never taught that all professing Christians, in name only, have the grace of the Spirit in their hearts as a matter of course because they are baptized or because they belong to the church, or because they partake of Holy Communion. It has steadily maintained that the fruits of the Spirit are the only evidence of having the Spirit, and that those fruits must be seen, that we must be born of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, sanctified by the Spirit, and feel the operations of the Spirit, and that a close walk with God in the path of His commandments a life of holiness, charity, self-denial, purity, and zeal to do good are the only satisfactory marks of the Holy Spirit. So how does your life measure to God? How did, a lot, how did the lives of your uh, heroes compare to that? I almost said Christian heroes. How did they compare and if you're not a believer and you're here with us gathered, we're so glad you're here. But I would ask, 
How does the life of that person who claims himself a Christian measure up to you? Maybe you've pushed Christianity away because you've been burned by people who call themselves Christian. But they have never showed you what biblical Christianity really is. Maybe that's where you're at. Well, lastly, Jesus leaves us with two outcomes that can arise from these two ways of living. And in these final verses, he gives his listeners these one, these one of two outcomes that a person will face at the end of their life. Every person will face. You will either hear him speak the words, you will hear Jesus speak the words, well done, good and faithful servant, or I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. So in his grace, Jesus calls his listeners, and you are one of his listeners, to respond using this final metaphor in verses 24 through 27, which is essentially an appeal to live out practical wisdom. Jesus is saying to you this morning, Choose this day whom you shall serve. Will you choose the path that leads to flourishing? The path that leads to life? Or will you choose the path that leads to death and destruction? And what is the life that leads to flourishing and wisdom but one that is built upon Christ? Notice in verses 24 through 27, in Jesus' description of these two houses, that Jesus doesn't appeal to the outward appearance of the house. Because I know some of you are sitting there, uh, as I've read these words, you're sitting there and, go, and you're saying, I, I, I might be a false prophet. I'm, I, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't know. Because I have this sin that I'm continuing to struggle with, and I, I, I yelled at my wife this morning, or... Or, or I, I don't feel like that I'm a good parent, or, or I don't even feel like I, that I'm a good person. And I would, I would have you to look at these words here. For Jesus. He does not appeal to your outward appearance. He doesn't say, look at the paint on that house is chipped a little bit. The shingles on the roof are missing. He doesn't appeal to you and to your works and to what you look like. I said earlier that the broad way that leads to destruction probably leads to a well-lit and even beautifully attractive gate. Yet that does not make it good. So one's house could be beautiful, but built on a crumbling foundation. Likewise, one's house could be undesirable. It would be the house in the neighborhood that the homeowners association would complain about because you're dropping property values. But it's built on a foundation that could withstand hurricane force winds. It would never be shaken. So Jesus is asking you, what is your life built upon? What are you building your life upon right now? Is it built upon yourself? 
Does it build upon your supposedly good behavior or bad behavior or lack thereof? Is it built upon your reputation? Is it built upon your popularity or your success in your job? Or maybe you are a good parent. Maybe you are a good spouse. Maybe you are a good friend. Maybe you have all sorts of accolades that you could build your, build your life upon like Paul. Or are you building your house upon Christ? Those are your only choices. And out of his love, you, as one of Jesus' hearers, are being invited to build the foundation of your whole life upon him. Upon his teaching and way of being in this world. Jesus is saying to you, do you want to flourish? Do you want to have life? And Jesus says simply, follow me. And you will have life. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that that you have given us your word. I'm thankful that you've given us your word out of your out of your love for us. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to give us instructions. You didn't have to, 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 to send Jesus to warn us of, of, these, of these, these false realities that we fall prey to every single day of our lives. But you did. You loved the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him will have life. So, Father, I pray that you would renew our hearts. If that's something that we have believed for a long time and we are struggling to believe it tonight, today, that you would renew us. And I pray for those here who may have, may have ha, haven't believed this yet, that they would believe today, that they would see today as the day of their salvation and stop trusting in themselves and start trusting in Christ alone. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. For the Lord's Supper.